0: Welcome to this episode of Cognition. I'm Rolf Nelson.
1: And I'm Joe Hardy.
0: In this episode, we'll be talking to Annie Murphy-Paul, who is the author of the very recently um, published book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Uh, Annie is also the author of a book on um, prenatal uh, learning called Origins, uh, which also uh, was a popular TED Talk and has done science writing for uh, the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and the Best American Science Writing. Annie, welcome to the show.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Annie, uh, the book is called uh, Extended Mind. Could you tell us a little bit about what is the extended mind and what was sort of some of the big ideas behind writing the book?
2: Sure. So the theory of the extended mind was first proposed in 1998, a paper that was published in 1998 by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers. So it's not my idea. I want to be really clear about that up front. I think it's an, an amazing, interesting generative idea, but it was not mine to start with. And I came across it after years of writing about the science of learning and um, cognition and and thinking generally. And the reason it excited me so much is that it pulled together all these different strands of research that I'd been exploring but not and knowing that they were connected in some way but I couldn't quite put my finger on how say embodied cognition or situated cognition or socially distributed cognition these these bodies of research that I found so fascinating how they related to each other and so it was really when I read this paper on the extended mind, which I should say proposes that the mind isn't limited to the skull, to the brain. It actually extends out into the world. It draws in external resources. And when I say external, I you know, I mean things like our um our smartphones, our other kinds of tools, um, physical spaces in which we learn and work, the relationships we have with other people, but also, our bodies which is you know outside the brain but of course not external to us so it's a little it's a pretty capacious category but the idea is that thinking doesn't only happen in the brain it happens it's spread across all these extra neural resources and uh, you know another reason that that idea appealed to me so much was that i saw this uh, kind of idealization or fetishization of the of the brain going on in a lot of the popular science that I was watching and reading, and um, you know the, this idea that the brain is this amazing, extraordinary thing, the most complex structure in the universe, and and yet we all know that our brains fail us all the time, right? So it felt like there was this disjunction, like well, is it just my brain that's not so amazing, <laughs> you know, because sometimes I forget things and I can't pay attention or whatever. And so the extended mind offered this bridge to me between the fact that our biological brain is quite limited in in many ways, but hu- at the same time, human beings are able to do amazing things. And the way that they're able to do that, the way that they're able to transcend the limits of the biological brain is by relying on these Outside the brain resources, and that just seemed like such a cool idea to me.
0: Great. So, so one of the things that most people, I think, would be immediately familiar with, or this might resonate with, is just the idea that um, you can use your cell phones for a lot mm. of mm-hmm. thinking, or it, it feels, you know, maybe that feeling that if you lose your cell phone, you've lost, uh, uh you know, a part of your brain mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So, what other, you know, the? So, maybe describe this a little further. How you think of, you know, maybe even the relationship that you have with your cell phone, and mm-hmm. um, and what other things it extends to beyond um, beyond that immediate um, thing that we would think of.
2: Yes, and you know, in Clark and Chalmers' original paper, they they were really focused on the role of technology as the primary mental extension that they were talking about. They actually weren't talking about smartphones because this is back in 1998. They, they used as their main example, a notebook, you know, that if you have a notebook that, um, that you make, listen and, you know, um, record your thoughts in, maybe draw a diagram in, and you have that notebook with you um, pretty reliably within arm's reach, you know, all the time, then that, notebook, they said, ha- has become essentially a part of your thinking process. It's a part of your mind. And, you know, it's interesting to me now to look back at the reception of this this paper, which has since become one of the most cited papers in philosophy. But at the time, a lot of people reacted to it, both inside and outside the field of, of philosophy, with some, a lot of skepticism and some derision even, like, what a wacky idea. But then it was actually the introduction of the smartphone, you know, the app first iPhone was introduced by Apple in 2007, um, that started to make this idea, this previously sort of out there idea seem much more plausible. And in fact, the philosopher Ned Block at NYU has said that the theory of the extended mind was false when it was written, but subsequently became true, which I think is, it's is just sort a of great. Funny. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> yeah. I like that too. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. Yeah. But, you know, that aside, it is actually the case that human beings have been extending their minds, you know, um, from time immemorial. And as I was alluding to before, it's part of what makes human beings such amazing thinkers and creators. Um, but you're you're right that technology is Kind of the easiest way into the idea of the extended mind, because we are all familiar with the with the way that we offload our mental contents onto our smartphones. We rely on them to function as a kind of external memory for us. You know, n- none of us remember phone numbers anymore now that our our, our phones do that for us. Um, but and there's a, a sense, of course, in which our our devices are designed to do that. They're actually designed to be extensions of our minds. So it's it can be a little bit of a
0: right. We see the kind of predict <laughs> we see the kind of predictive um, algorithms on phones yeah, that we well, right. don't have on a book. It's not trying to anticipate us in any way.
2: Well, if the author's really good, yeah, well, sometimes it, you have sure. the feeling yeah. that they yeah that they yeah. have anticipated your questions. But yes, you're right, and 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 our devices are getting ever better at sort of um, functioning as parts of our minds, and that's why so many of us feel disoriented when. Um, when we lose our phone or 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 don't uh, have our phones at at arm's length, and in fact, there's a story that Andy Clark, the philosopher, you know, who who helped create the idea of the extended mind, that he a story that he tells about having left his um his laptop behind on a train at one point on, and he felt that he sustained some kind of temporary brain damage, which <laughs> really contributed to his sense that like, oh, you know my mind is not just in my head. It's, it's now really a lot of it is quite a bit of it is in my computer. And when I, when my computer is, is gone, so is my, so is my mind. Um, But it can be a little bit of a, um, a bigger leap to think of other things, things other than our technology, our technologies and our devices as extensions. You know, one of, one of the primary, extensions that I write about in the extended mind is our is our bodies. Um, And that kind of goes up against a whole tradition in Western thought of that that says that mind and body are separate. But this um, emerging um, field of research called embodied cognition is really pushing back against that.
1: Yeah, embodied cognition is a very interesting topic and something that I'm quite, uh, you know, I find fascinating, quite interested in Mm -hmm. from practical standpoint. Mm hmm. Um, One of the uh, theories that you mentioned in the book is one of my favorite theories in psychology, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. the James Lang theory of Mm -hmm, emotion. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, William James here and and his ideas around this and how they might relate to embodied cognition?
2: Yes. I always love to talk about William James because I feel like whenever – you, one comes across a really cool idea in psychology it turns out that william james had it first <laughs> yeah always <laughs> always yes <laughs> so amazing but so you know he um his his theory of emotion is interesting because it 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 goes against the way we we often think about emotion or experience emotion which is something happens uh we have a we have a, a feeling about it and then out of that feeling uh we you know the brain directs the body to respond. So say you know this is this is James's example. Say we're in the woods and we come across a bear. We feel frightened that the emotion happens, and then the brain says to the body, you know, run, get going. And what James said is that no, it actually the causal arrow points in the other direction. You you see the bear and immediately uh, your body kicks in. It starts it starts running and then from the, the the bodily experience, the embodied experiences you're having, your, your heart is beating, your legs are, are pumping, and uh, your hands are sweating, um, y- your brain deduces that you must be frightened, you know, and you, you process that bodily information and construct it into an emotion. And what's interesting is that, you know, a new generation of research by neuroscientists and others using um, the kind of investigative technologies that, that James had no access to is confirming that this is really something more like how it works.
1: Yeah, there's, there's sort of no question at this point that interpretation of these uh, bodily processes is important in you know, your experience of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I guess it's also not the case that the brain isn't involved at all. I mean, the brain, of right. course, is processing visual information to mm-hmm. identify that the bear is there. I guess the, the 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 twist is in the theory, right? Is that it's not that like you say, oh, there's a bear, I should be scared. Then you get mm-hmm. scared and then you run. Mm-hmm. It's it's everything's right, happening right. in parallel. Everything's happening very mm-hmm. quickly, mm-hmm. and you actually the way your body responds, which is of course mediated through your brain, right, is interpreted by some other process in the brain, you know, as the conscious experience that you then interpret as fear essentially.
2: Right, right, right. And, you know, the, the researcher Lisa Feldman Barrett has done interesting work showing that, um, yeah, that we actually, uh, emotion feels to us like it's so automatic. And it's so it comes to us as a, as a package, you know, already kind of labeled fear or anger or whatever. But she um, has shown that we actually we take these raw materials of our our bodily reactions and we construct um, our our experience of emotion and that we can actually intervene in that process. You know, because for example, t- the experience of nervousness and the experience of excitement on a bodily level are are almost indistinguishable. So, if this is not actually her work, this is I'm thinking of another researcher, Allison Wood Wood Brooks. But if you can intervene in that process by um, instead of telling yourself, God, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, or even worse, calm down, calm down, <laughs> which is, which is what hard. we tend to do. But of course, that's, that's uh, trying to quash those bodily sensations is, is kind of a fool's errand. But if you can instead cognitively reappraise those embodied experiences um, of a racing heart and sweaty palms as excitement, that actually has a very different valence, a very different flavor to us. And it can actually, you know, affect and improve our performance.
0: Yeah. And there's this, um, this recent book, and I'm forgetting the author right now, The Upside of Stress, which is Mm. a similar kind Mm. of thing Mm -hmm. that um, people consider stress to be something Mm. that's always Mm -hmm. bad. But Mm -hmm. in you know, if you if you can reappraise it as something that's motivational, or has a Mm -hmm. purpose to it, Mm -hmm. it can be actually something useful. Yeah. Uh, And it doesn't have to be experienced as this awful thing.
2: Right. No, you can see it as your body preparing you to take on a challenge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, okay. So, you know, one thing that may be tricky to uh, get our minds around and no pun or anything intended here, but how do you think of, so if, if there is some Extended thought. How do you think of the thought that is going on in some external object, or whether it be a notebook, or you know something that just forms part of the structure of the environment that can help you think? How do you how do you how do you think uh, how do you think of thought going on in, in uh, that external thing? Because I think it it mm-hmm. really you know it it's hard to intuit the idea that our cell phone is doing anything that's like cognition. Yeah, You know, if it has, you know, it may have information in it that we can access. Um, but how does that interface, how does that interface with, with us to, to make it, make it into a thought?
2: Yeah. You know, this is something that, um, I mentioned the reaction, the, the, um, reception of the the Clark and Chalmers paper. And this is something that has given philosophers something to think about and argue about now for more than 20 years. And um, I, my own take on it is a pretty loose one in the sense that I don't, I think it's, I wouldn't say it's just semantics, but I'm not that, I'm not so interested in the debate over, you know, is it really your mind? Is it really um, is the the notebook or the smartphone really um, has it become part of your thinking process? To me, it feels pretty intuitive or pretty, um, I, I guess I have, I have just, I'm just at ease accepting the idea that, that these external influences are part of my thinking process and the debates about whether it's really a part of your mind. Um, i I think I'll leave to the philosophers, but
0: <laughs> uh, maybe I, you know, I, I guess one thing I'm also thinking of too, is, um, you know, if you th- just extensions of self and, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do naturally form extensions of ourselves where, you know, we're great at using tools and, you know, when we're, you know, if we have a lot of experience driving, when we get in our car, it feels like, you know, an extension of our personal space mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. that feels very natural. And I, I, um, and I'm I'm trying to think of you know a cell phone as sort of an extension in the same sort of way.
2: Yeah. Well, Clark and Chalmers have a, a principle. They talk about the parity principle, which is if the object or the you know if we're talking about a body part or if we're talking about a some layout of physical space, if it if it performs the same function that we would call thinking, if it happened inside the mind. Um, then, then by definition, they they you know they include that in in what we would normally consider the mind. Um, you know, and it's interesting when we, as you know, not just our our everyday technologies, but as um, the science of sort of prosthetic devices and mm-hmm. um, rehabilitative kind of technologies advances, I think that question is going to be posed more and more keenly sharply to us you know what what is the mind and where does it end
0: yeah absolutely
2: you know to say it ends at the skull just um is not going to be a sufficient answer anymore
1: the second part of the book talks about uh situated cognition and Mm -hmm. the role of your environment on your thinking and feeling i guess as well do you want to talk a little bit about what you have come across and been thinking about in situated cognition?
2: Yeah, so I I find that stuff super interesting as I sit here in my office <laughs> looking around at what how I've arranged it and then looking out the window at the at the outdoors, which is another kind of uh, context for thinking in. You know, I to me this gets back to this very common, very um, central metaphor that we that we all draw on, even without realizing it. This analogy of that that compares the brain to a computer and you know it's it's so embedded in the way we think that and the or the language we use we don't even we're not even always aware of it but it's a flawed metaphor in a lot of ways and i think one of the places that shows up is in our the the role of of context and place um you know a, c- a computer my laptop here that i'm using to record this podcast it doesn't care in the sense of it doesn't operate any differently here on my desk than it would if I took it to a park and sat on a, a bench and used it there. Mm-hmm. But that's not how the human brain operates. We're actually really exquisitely sensitive to context, whether that's you know being outdoors versus indoors, being in a, an urban environment versus a, a more pastoral environment, being in a social environment as opposed to being alone. All these things affect the way the brain works in the way that it operates in the way that it thinks. And so we can be really led astray by this computer metaphor, because that's not, it's not an an accurate rendering of how the the human brain works.
1: Interesting. Yeah. What I was thinking when you were saying that, and as I was reading this part of the book as well, um, I was thinking about the work of J.J. Gibson and Mm -hmm. direct Mm -hmm. perception um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: from the perspective that, you know, the environment, you know, I guess the the role of inputs in the process of thinking, and the and the role of mm. effectors in the process of thinking. So, in the human experience, unlike a computer, we are so much impacted and affected, and even controlled by our environment, yes. in the sense of the, all the inputs that we're receiving through our senses, and then also how that interfaces with the, our effectors. So our ability to move our arms, our ability to you know move our legs, to move around, but also to speak. All of these things interface and interact with our environment in, in the ways that are complex and interacting. Mm-hmm. And so in the case of JJ Gibson, he talks about the idea of, of direct perception where you're not, uh, you know, the, the affordances of the environment mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. sort of directly experienced by the mind, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's an interesting uh, kind of, yeah, relationship between that that way of thinking and this idea of situated cognition. It's not like you can abstract out the mind from mm-hmm. its environment. It's It's
0: mm-hmm. really
1: embedded in its environment and co-creates its environment as well.
2: Absolutely, yeah,
0: Joe. Yeah, and to follow up on this too, and and the the Gibson quote that I like uh, that I think might be relevant is when he says, uh, "Don't ask what's inside your head, but ask what your head's inside of."
2: So, oh, that's so cool! I've <laughs> never heard that. I oh, love oh that. great. Okay, yeah, I, that, I thought that might be used relevant. As it's an a, epigraph or something.
0: <laughs> it's a uh, yeah. I mean, it, it I, and I like that because it's more of a focus on. It's sort of a switch in focus than necessarily, uh, you know that you know, everything is outside the brain. It's just, Mm -hmm. uh, well, look at all this information is out there for you to be used. Mm -hmm. And, and that approach um, yielded a a whole lot of great insights about how vision works just by Mm. understanding how optic flow and, you know, all of these things work and how you can just take direct advantage of them.
2: Yeah. And I think it's a, um, it, it to me it's a very useful and practical message because it counteracts the message that we get from the rest of the culture, which is you should be able to do your thinking anywhere, anytime. You know, a lot of us had to really completely readjust our working spaces and schedules and practices with the advent of the of the oh, yes, pandemic. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people experience the fact that it's it's not you can't just you can't just order the brain to um operate independently of its environment the environment really affects cognition in ways that are um pretty significant and so but that's you know again we're kind of we kind of expect the brain to operate like a computer as if we can Push, you know, press on, and it, it will work the same way anywhere, anytime.
1: Yeah, in, in the book, you talk about um, Jackson Pollock and mm. his work, and how that was affected by his situ, you know, physical situation as he moved from Manhattan to Long Island. Mm. You want to do you want to talk a little bit about that? And
2: yeah, yeah. I really love that story because he. Interestingly, Jackson Pollock painted in a very distinctive way when he was um, living and working in New York City in downtown Manhattan. And, uh, but he, as we as we all know, he was a very volatile personality and was uh, struggling with depression and alcoholism while he was in while he was in the city. And after having visited long the East End of Long Island, um, which is not. Quite how we think of it today, it, it's um, it was a much more kind of pastoral, uh, verdant, quiet place, which was mostly inhabited by fishermen and farmers. Um, when he visited some friends out there and, and found again that the, the the space really affected his mood, it had affected the way he was thinking and feeling. He decided that he and his wife Lee Krasner should should move there. So they they bought this old farmhouse uh, in Springs, Long Island, and. He uh, Pollock had a studio out back that had big windows that let in all this light and views of views of nature. And apparently, he spent many hours sitting on the back porch of his house, looking out at the the trees and the greenery. And what's so fascinating to me is that his his um, art his, the, his style of making art changed profoundly once he moved out to Springs, and he started to make you know what we all know him for these, uh, these drip paintings. And, you know, I, I don't know how deeply you want to get into this, but there's this fascinating sideline in the book I talk about where um, fractals are a kind of a measure of the complexity of of information mm-hmm. in, a, in a given scene. And it turns out that the, if you, um, on that dimension, these famous drip paintings of Pollux are very similar to the way that information is organized in the natural environment. There was something about um, what he was seeing in nature that he brought into his art, which I think is just, is so beautiful because of course these are abstract paintings. When you look at them, you don't, you don't see trees or birds or anything like that, but he captured kind of the essence of, of nature and put it down on a canvas.
1: That's fascinating. There's, there's some really interesting research on natural scenes perception where the, uh, the amount of processing that the brain needs to do, or the mm-hmm. amount of like energy that it needs to expend to process that information, is actually relatively low
0: mm-hmm. compared mm-hmm. to
1: built environments or artificial right. environments. It makes sense, right? The sort of the brain is is set to respond to things that are novel or unusual, or you know, that's what takes work. The things right. that are they're sort of you know, expected or natural or or sort of congruent mm-hmm. don't take mm-hmm. as much. So it's interesting to think about how a, a, a painter like Jackson Pollock, who is so abstract, um, his work might be taking advantage of some of these regularities mm, that, mm. That, that exist in the natural environment that we don't, yeah, that we on a conscious level can't can't appreciate that relationship between between the work right. that he does and and the environment. That's that's fascinating.
2: Yeah, and mine explains some of the enormous. Affection that people have for these paintings, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they are just, you can get lost in them. I've spent many an hour looking at them at, at, you know, at MoMA. But I think it's also interesting to think about in terms of our own personal experience of nature. And I think we all know that nature makes us feel good, that we often feel relaxed and at ease in nature. I mean, one of the things I like best about this body of research is that it helps explain why that would be the case, that beyond just kind of a, you know, um, new agey kind of, you know, we, Nate, we, I and nature are one kind of thing. Like it, <laughs> it has more to do with, as you were saying about um, perceptual fluency, the the kind of the way that our sensory faculties are tuned to the kind of, to the way that information is presented in nature and how being in built or urban settings is actually quite cognitively challenging and draining. And that's why it can be so useful to sort of, um, replenish and, and refresh our attentional faculties by going out into nature.
0: So another thing that you talk about, um, so, you know, extending beyond, um, cell phones and other, you know, technologies and, uh, and nature too, is, um, that you can invest, um, your mind in other people. So, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. you know, we're part of a community. So what, you know, what sorts of advantages can you get by thinking this way?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking of um this scene that I open one of the chapters with um of of a crew on a, a ship but um you know a, a, um, a US military ship and also on board that ship was Ed, uh, Edwin Hutchins who is a a um cognitive scientist who wrote this wonderful book called Cognition in the Wild which I think is such a great title but um you know and he was there to Observe how the crewmates on a huge ship like this, you know, so complex and so um, just unfathomably complicated to to operate, how they put their minds together as one in a sense to make this um, to make this ship um you know, operate in the way it should, and and pilot it safely in, into the harbor. And the the story in the book is, you know, there's there's an emergency, and an unant- unanticipated event where, it, it, in especially in an, an especially dramatic way, the crew really had to come together and. On the fly, uh, integrate their 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 thinking to to save you know save the ship and and the people in the harbor from certain disaster. But um, you know in in the less dramatic ways, I think it's just the case that groups of people thinking together can do things that the, an individual thinking alone can't, and that's increasingly the case. You know, as our world becomes more complicated as our expertise becomes more specialized. It's just much, much more difficult for an individual to do it on his own, his or her own. And so I I think that's something that our education, educational system hasn't quite caught up with. We don't really learn how to think together, at least how to think successfully and effectively together in groups. And that's something that, um, should absolutely be part of what we of what we learn because that's so much of what we do in the workplace
0: and that's that seems to be related to ideas of, of individualism and um, mm-hmm. and community too because I think you know I guess it's obvious or you know when you think about it it's obvious that one person couldn't have created an iPhone mm-hmm. just by you know mining materials and putting it all together themselves right. and that some of the enormous complexity you know building a pyramid or, or, or you know, mm. any large scale project is going to require cooperation and, and that cooperation is going to require some, you know, shared um, cognitive resources too, so that people are on the same page and 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 operating in a way that, that they can produce more than they ever could individually.
2: Yeah. Well, this, and this, um, our habits of, you know, what you might call cognitive individualism really haven't caught up with the reality of our of our world, you know, I talk in the book about um, how traditional apprenticeships, you know, were um, based on the idea that the expert could show the novice what they were doing, whether we're talking about a blacksmith or a tailor or a um, a carpenter, and then the novice could see for himself and try it and be guided by the expert and that was a very effective way of learning that obviously served humanity well for centuries. But what we do now is so much, our work so often is knowledge work is internal. And so we haven't quite developed um, adequate systems for transferring internal knowledge, you know, um, knowledge that's held inside our heads from one person to another. And that's especially the case when we're talking about experts teaching novices, because as we know, you know, experts in the process of becoming experts, the, the, what they know becomes organized in a way that makes it actually quite inaccessible to novices. They chunk information, they, um, they, they, they know what to look for in ways that novices don't yet know. And so, um, you know, there's really interesting research suggesting that experts not only t- don't tell a novice everything that they know when they're trying to teach them, they they actually can't because that knowledge has been so automatized. Um, so I think we need we need to think about better ways of tra- of affecting a transfer of knowledge from one mind to another.
0: That's an interesting example. Yeah, um, that,
1: that comes up a lot in uh, you know in technology. I work in in the you know the tech space and in writing software. It's a classic example where you can you know Google almost anything in mm-hmm, you know in mm-hmm. software and, and find something that. Um, someone has written that is helpful or useful in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But to become an expert in a particular field, you really do need to interact with other experts and to learn from them by doing, by working on a project together, by working on a team. Yes. And the importance of teams in, in that space is uh, something that, that is appreciated, but I think not appreciated enough or in the right ways that, that we're still learning a lot about how, um, to make those teams effective and, and work well together.
2: Yeah. Well, I think part of it is that our model of learning is a solitary person sort of hunched over a desk reading a book, right. you know, and learning it's really works best when it's social. And yet we think of social life as as a kind of frivolous distraction from real learning or real thinking, you know. So we haven't really integrated our incredible social capacities as human beings with our, with the way we learn. And I think that's another thing that I'd like to see change in our education system and our workplace training.
0: Well, why don't we take a short break here and uh, we'll get right back to some of this.
1: Welcome back. We've been talking about this wonderful book, The Extended Mind, and looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation here. Um, So, as we've been talking about in this last section, um, you know, the role of thinking with other people Mm -hmm. got me thinking about the idea of of the role of language Mm. and also, the idea that maybe is like, in some ways, human language, one of the first biggest examples of the extended mind that that really, you know, allows human beings in evolutionary history to, you know, extend their influence well beyond their, their physical presence at any given moment uh, through interacting and, and sharing ideas and co-creating ideas with language
2: yeah I mean that that has to be the case, right? i mean i I know you're talking about language generally, including spoken language, but I think particularly of written language yeah. and um the you know, in my own experience, the challenge of writing a book, I mean, can you imagine <laughs> um you know i I relied so much on so many different kinds of manifestations of written language, you know my my database of of um Research citations and all the books I consulted when I read the when I wrote this book and my own notes, which I you know needed to see mm-hmm. in front of me and move around on my screen and all that, it, you know, it it makes me think of um, the work by Walter Ong and others about how um, before the advent of written language, people used all kinds of other devices like mnemonic kind of devices and repetition and. And traditional story structures, you know, I'm thinking of like Homer and like the, the bards who like had these ways of, who, who had these ways of, of keeping track of, of what they were saying and, and, and telling a consistent story and, um, and how much written language does that for us now.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, I was also, you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about how much the act of writing actually has a role of in creating the thought itself. Mm, does that mm. does that resonate with you? I mean just the idea that like you will have thoughts when you're writing that you would never have if you were just sort of you know either idly thinking about things or um or even reading.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think most writers would say that they discover what they think through writing it. Um, and, you know, I think of what, um, the psychologist Daniel Reesberg says about the detached, what he calls the detachment gain, that by taking the thoughts out of our heads and putting them down on paper, it, you know, actually this is going back to Gibson, you know, it, you create a different set of affordances, mm-hmm. um, when, once you download or offload your thoughts onto paper like that. And Reesberg was saying, you know, you can then inspect it with your, Senses, you can um, you can reflect on it because you've put a little space between yourself and your thoughts, and it's it's almost like a whole different process than when you're thinking those thoughts in your head.
0: It's a funny thing, too. And this this um, so getting something out of your head and onto the page and putting out it in a book. I think a lot of people might assume that. Everything in that book that you've written must be immediately accessible to you, and you know every word. You know every word that's in the book. Because <laughs> I noticed, I think maybe students think this about you know a textbook writer or something. Often, oh yeah, and it's it's not true. Sometimes that knowledge is maybe a little distant from what you're, what you're. You can immediately call to mind.
2: Yes, in fact, recently I was interviewed about a book I'd I'd written years ago, uh, it came out in 2004. So it was really quite a long time ago, my, a book I wrote about, it was a cultural history and scientific critique of personality testing. And I was being interviewed for a documentary film about personality testing. And I had to keep consulting oh, my own funny. book to remember. <laughs> and when I read it now, it's really like someone else wrote it. It's it's really, it's, it's such, talk about the detachment gain. I'm so detached from it that I don't even remember it or remember writing it. But that's kind of the miracle of written language that it fixes our thoughts in place in a way that is really useful for thinking about those thoughts.
1: Yeah. Sometimes it's funny when you go back and you're, you know, maybe you'll find a note or something and you're like reading it and maybe you didn't even re- realize that it was something you wrote. And I, I'll yeah. sometimes do this and I'll be like, oh, that was. T- who wrote this? This is terrible. <laughs> or, oh, that's really insightful. That's great. Oh wait, I wrote that. Yeah. yeah,
2: and if it wasn't in your own handwriting, you almost wouldn't believe that it was. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. That's funny.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting bit on ownership of. I mean, your thoughts. I guess that you know when you're thinking a thought immediately and then it dissipates, you you take full ownership mm. of it. But you you know you. Mm you're not going to you're not going to feel responsible for that fleeting thought that you had 20 years later in the same way that you might be held account- accountable for something you wrote in a book i suppose so maybe there's something unfair <laughs> about that <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well it also speaks to the idea i mean in the context of the extended mind right and and the social environment in which ideas happened it also speaks to this idea of you know as you mentioned the idea of ownership i think our model is so much of, of intellectual property and ownership of ideas mm, is so much mm. this idea that ideas and, and these thoughts and intellectual property are developed inside one person's skull. Yes, yes, and yes. And so often it's hard to attribute really the, the genesis and origin of an idea or several researchers in different parts of the world will simultaneously have the same right. insight you know, or write down at least the same insight at the same moment.
2: Right, right. Yeah, that makes me think of an experience I had recently. I I live in New Haven and I often teach and interact with Yale students. And I was meeting with a group of them recently and explaining to them the extended mind. I was sort of interested to hear what a bunch of, you know, 20-somethings would think about it because these are people who've grown up with using their smartphones as extensions of their minds. They don't, you know, they've never experienced anything different. And I, as I was talking about the idea of the extended mind, I noticed that this one student was looking more and more perturbed, more and more upset and distressed. And finally he sort of burst out and said, this is a very dangerous idea. And I was surprised and I asked him to elaborate and I, listening to him, I realized that, you know, this Yale student, was a, someone who'd been striving his whole life based on this idea of individual achievement you know and the idea that ideas are not and the products of our intellect are not maybe necessarily ours alone was was threatening to him i found that very interesting i think it speaks to how deeply the commitment to individualism goes in our culture we we like to hold up lone geniuses you know and that's that's um it's just getting less and less possible, I think, for any one person to to make a, a really transformative contribution. Not that, not that it can't happen, but so often, I mean, if you look at um, team science, for example, and, and um, there are there are papers now, scientific papers that have literally thousands of authors. You know, so I think those kinds of developments are going to challenge our sense that as you were saying, you know, this, this assumption that ideas are the product of one mind. It's, no, it's
0: absolutely. An interesting connection, and to circle this back around a little bit. Um, so I know that in uh, Andy Clark and Chelmer's original paper, um, one of the things they talked about is that for something to feel like it's part of your mind, or, you know, it feels like an extension of your mind, is that it has to be, it has to feel like it's attributable to you. That you mm, you need mm. to f- feel it coming from yourself, and that's a funny thing mm. because, mm. Um, you know, you could, you know, <laughs> we feel this all the time that you know our it's our conscious will that's causing something, um, but you know that's just mm. it. It's a feeling or it's a sense of attachment to an idea, and not necessarily something that's uh, you know that's absolutely real, and it's not maybe not something that would generate directly from us. So. <laughs> it's hmm. interesting that it would it would you know the the feeling of uh something external being a part of yourself would relate to how, you know how much ownership you take over that so there's some connection in that way
2: hmm yeah i think it's it's interesting to think about the relationship we have with our devices that um you know there was this some survey done recently that showed that some <laughs> enormous percentage of people uh had their 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 smartphones within arm's reach like all the time, including when they were sleeping. And, you know, like it was, I, I don't think, you know, Clark and Chalmers even could have imagined how, um, you know, when they wrote their paper, how, what, what a perfect.
0: How hard it would be to take a phone <laughs> away right. from someone. Yeah. And, and
2: what a perfect example of their, of their thesis, the this, this smartphone would, would be. They were very fortunate in a way that, that they were, or very prescient, I guess, in, in the sense that, um, their 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 ideas were born out so you know so um, conclusively by reality
1: yeah you know as as we're thinking about this and thinking about um, these extensions of of mind it actually brings me back to something Rolf that you and I have talked about um, in the past, which is the idea of if you could connect. Uh, your mind directly to another person's mind through like a neural Mm. interface Mm. sure Mm. and
0: all this stuff Elon Musk is working on
1: Mm. yeah exactly Mm. Rolf do you want to talk a little bit about that and your your thoughts oh yeah well
0: uh, gosh I don't know what I can put together that would sound good but I do remember well certainly I mean one of the things that seems um valuable about um Having external information is being able to, ex, you know, if you can access it immediately, that would be great. And writing's a little slow for that. So in order, you know, to mm. go through a book, it takes a long time mm. to access something versus mm-hmm. which you could access mm. in your mind, I suppose. Mm. Um, mm. So you know, this is science fiction. When, you know, science fiction when we, you know, when Elon Musk does get that cable that runs from our brain and we can just interface it, but. Mm-hmm. That sure would be a nice advantage of being able to process information in a way that a computer processes it, um, to hmm. be able to um, have that common language because I guess there's maybe there's a little bit of uh, translation in order to get uh, other kinds of information into our minds in this way.
2: And would that cable connect two brains two people? Oh, sure. <laughs> I guess that's the, well, idea. the neural oh, yeah. link
1: the idea is that it actually connects a whole network. Of brains. Oh, so like oh. the internet is now an internet of brains, essentially.
2: Right, and, right.
1: And one of the challenges that we realize is think about that, is that if I could get all the information from your brain injected mm-hmm. directly into my brain, mm-hmm, even with mm-hmm. highest the highest possible fidelity, would I actually understand what it is you were saying or trying to say right. or thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so like I don't, we're not sure. We don't know that that's, that, that would yeah. wouldn't work that way. Well, that's faster. the, I mean, I yeah. guess what
0: you're talking about, Joe, is just sort of the um, problem of other minds kind of thing. Could you, you know, the, the, what is it like to be a bat kind of question? Mm-hmm, can you understand, mm-hmm. can you understand from the complete contextual point of view of the other person? What it is right, that they're exactly thinking, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. and without having had the embodied experiences of learning yes, these things, yes. could, could you? It's almost yeah. like you can hand someone a physics textbook and they can read the words, but did they? Do you, did you really da- You know, did they really take that in and understand it? Probably not. Yeah, and right.
0: that's why Nagel, I think, uses the example of a bat too, because it's hard for us to imagine the embodied experience of a bat flying through the air. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. different, Especially sensory. processing
1: echolocation. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. a sense that we don't have.
2: Yeah. But you know, what I find really interesting too is that we already um, have these kind of natural technologies of of transferring information from one brain to another. I mean, as, as we were saying earlier, they don't always work as well as we would like, but there's all these... Um, ways of bridging the gap that we have, that we've evolved as, as, as human beings to um, make our, to, to feel, to participate in what we might call the group mind, you know? And what's fascinating to me is that they're often so visceral or so primitive almost, you know? I mean, I write in the book about synchronized movement and how, you know, that, that this is a, it's a it's a very primitive kind of technology that like is used by militaries mm-hmm. and churches yes. and groups of all kinds to get people on the same page and um you know we look askance at it now because it feels uh it can often feel like a kind of scary groupthink um but you know human beings are are evolved to work together and to think together. And we have all these ways of doing it. It's not, it's almost not, it's not science fiction, you know, it actually is happening right now. No, it's, it's
1: real technology, right? I mean, the, the idea of mm-hmm. ritual movement of mm-hmm. synchronizing mm-hmm. people in dance or other types of ritualized movement, especially in the context of music or other sounds that mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. you know, that are at a certain pace or cadence. Yeah. I mean, that's ancient, ancient technology and it really works. Right. I mean, uh, right. yeah, it gets people, Connected in ways that are, you know, advantageous to to groups in certain certain contexts can also be negative in other ways. Yeah, and this right, um, right. I think of
0: Douglas Hofstetter uh, did some work. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know this too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he thought about overlap between different people, and I think yes. he had this term called persons that was sort of mm-hmm. uh, you sure. know sort of like Venn diagrams of two people overlapping, mm-hmm. and the place where they intersected was sort of their common shared experience and. That was mm-hmm. what he called a person so that there was, you know, and that sort of went along with the idea that maybe when you died, that, you know, part of your mind was left in, in other people's minds also. Uh, so it's distributed yes. in that way.
2: Yeah. No, I, I, that makes me think of his book, I Am a Strange Loop, and his incredibly poignant reflections on his, on his wife who had died and how much he felt her living on in him. It yes. was such a beautiful exposition of that idea. Yes.
0: And I know you talked about loops and you talk about loops and their relevance mm-hmm. in your book, too. So maybe that's a tangent mm-hmm. that we, we can't fully explain, I suppose, but it's in <laughs> certainly an interesting mm-hmm. one.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the idea of loops, again, pushes back against this computer metaphor of the brain where everything is sort of linear and you, you know it's input output actually the human brain works very differently where we are thinking benefits from being passed in and out of these loops you know into the brain back out into the world through the brain the minds of other people onto the page back into our minds you know and that's not how computers work but it is how human brains work
1: yeah. I mean there you could you could argue that there's some interesting developments in our AI that take advantage of similar of some looping feedback oh, loops. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah in different ways. But again, it's all that's all just by all way of saying that um artificial intelligence has, still has a lot to learn from, from right, the brain. Yeah. Or right. that let's say the, the the human way of thinking or human experience right. of thinking
2: that it helps to have a body for one thing um yeah, which is an and, interesting and, direction that ai is going
1: yeah the inputs and outputs and and being able to move through the world and and seek out specific sets of inputs and and have the the direct interaction between input and output in that loop yeah is so so incred- incredibly important to our way of experiencing the world
0: right right, right well Annie, as we uh, as we think about wrapping up in respect to your time um I want to make sure we get to uh, a practical question. So, um mm. through this whole process of writing the book, um what are the what are the most practical things that you've found in everyday life that that help you think a little better and and use your environment to externalize?
2: Yeah. Well, I write in the book that I don't think I could have pulled this book off, which you know, it's it was quite an ambitious project. Uh, to look at how all these things. It is, yeah. It is um, an ambitious book. Yeah, I don't think I could have written it without what I learned from writing it in terms of uh, how to externalize thoughts, how to offload, how to extend your mind with external resources. So, you know, some of the practical things I did, um, uh, I definitely um, used nature as a way and movement in nature. You know, it's great when you can combine two or even three different things, like talking with a friend as you walk in nature, <laughs> you know, you're killing three birds with one stone. But, um, you know, I definitely thought in terms of rather than mustering mental resources from within, which is what we're often encouraged to do by society and by, you know, some some popular psychology ideas like grit or the growth mm-hmm. mindset that it's all kind of internal. Like I, I definitely tried to think in terms of, well, how can I change the external situation such that my mind responds by thinking better? So that it might mean taking a walk outside if I felt like my attention was fading, or it might mean, um, you know, finding someone to bounce my ideas off of rather than trying to struggle on with it alone. Um,
0: But an emphasis in general, sort of an emphasis on on maybe focusing on the external environment as a source of information rather than Huddling and and concentrating harder, right?
2: Right, and being aware of how limited the yeah. brain the the brain on its own is, which is not the message as I was saying that we get from society. We're kind of expected to we expect so much of our our brains, and they're really not always up to the job. In part because of the mismatch between what our brains evolved to do and what we ask of it in our you know modern knowledge centric society. So I try to think in terms of well. What is the brain good at? It's good at sensing and moving the body. It's good at navigating through three dimensional space. It's good at connecting with other people. And the more you can leverage those natural human strengths to do these other things that the brain is not really so well suited to do, like wrestle with abstract idea and non, you know, counterintuitive counterintuitive ideas, the more the easier and the more efficient and effective your thinking will be.
1: Well, that's great. Well. Annie, thank you so much uh, for for being on the show. And the book is, again, is called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain by Annie Murphy-Paul. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks. This has been a pleasure.